Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I'm joined with my co-host, my wife and multiple Olympian, Laura Bennett. And we have a delightful conversation with an entertaining and inspiring guest in Vicky Holland. In this episode, Vicky entertains us with some of the greatest moments in her career, how she felt in Rio the morning of the race and what was going through her head during the race and what was on the line in 2018 when she won the world title and how did she manage herself during the grand final. This is simply a fun and entertaining and inspiring episode. But before we go on, firstly, thank you so much for listening. Um, Also, if you're enjoying the show, We'd love your support either by sharing on your social media platforms and or supporting the show's sponsors, Athletic Greens, Hyperice, and Form Swim Goggles. They're all great companies with great products, and this show is not possible without them. Now, I hope you enjoy Vicky Holland as much as Laura and I did. And remember, success comes to those who enjoy just one moment longer. Do you want to move better? Do you want to reach your full potential? If yes, then you should really consider Hyperice recovery tools. Personally, I use the Hypervolt and the Vibrating Roller daily. So simple, quick, and easy to look after my body at home. Hyperice is currently running a few sales on both the Normatec line and the Hypervolt with Bluetooth. It's a great time for anyone to take advantage of the discount. Plus, get 10% off all Hyperice products using the exclusive Greg Bennett Show code Greg21 at checkout. Go to hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com. H Y P E R I C E.com and use code Greg21 at checkout. Are you someone who enjoys swimming in the open water? Personally, I love it far more than the pool. The thing, though, that I miss in the open water swimming is the ability to get any feedback. But now with the Form Smart Swim goggles, I have that covered. Whether I'm in the pool or open water, I can get my feedback. With Form Swim Goggles, you can see all your key metrics while you're swimming. Your distance, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. This swim data is displayed on the goggle lens, and you can customize the display to see the metrics you want to see. The goggles track it all and are automated. You start them at the beginning of your swim, and you don't have to press any buttons in between. They automatically track everything. The goggles connect to the Form Swim app on your smartphone, and there you can review all the details of your swims. The battery life is incredible. With a one-hour charge, giving you 16 hours of swimming time. So go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off. Or you can use code Greg15 at checkout. I'm using Athletic Greens every day. Great taste, so quick and just ready to go. I've discussed Athletic Greens with several of the guests who are using it daily as well. Miranda Carfrey, Timothy O'Donnell, Tim Don, and Sebastian Kinley. You see... Athletic Greens is more than just a multivitamin and mineral. It's a delicious blend of 75 superfoods, vitamins, minerals, probiotics, greens blend, and more to support your gut health, energy, immunity, and stress. My focus is overall health, longevity, feeling good, and feeling like I'm optimizing each day. And Athletic Greens is there for me to do just that. I've also been doubling down on Athletic Greens vitamin D, a huge portion of the population of vitamin D deficient, including myself. And right now, Athletic Greens will give you a year's supply of vitamin D for free and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Please do yourself a favor and sign up. It also makes a great gift for a family member or friend. So sign up now and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. 
Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. All right, today's guest is one of the greatest triathletes of this past decade. Highlights being a three-time British Olympian, which includes being a member for the team for the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games, a bronze medal at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games, and her incredible world title in 2018. Add to that her Commonwealth Games medals in 2014 and 2018, and her mixed relay world titles in 2012 and 2014. Her resume over the past 10 years, plus medaling at the last Olympics, her third place at the Tokyo Test event in 2019 with the fastest run performance of the day, really has her going into these Olympics as a strong medal favourite. She's one of the great personalities of the sport, and it's an enormous privilege to have her on the show. So welcome, and thank you for joining us on The Greg Bennett Show. Vicky Holland, how are you? Oh, well, I'm uh, blushing right now, actually. <laughs> so thank you. That was quite the introduction. And uh, yeah, you know, I've listened to a lot of your podcast, Greg, so I'm really, really chuffed to be here. So thank you for asking me. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? All I do is read out your resume and it really <laughs> has been an incredible, you know, more more than a decade, but it's just uh, every time it matters, we seem, you you know, you, you're stepping up. So it's just fantastic to have you on. I'm so excited about you you know, now getting ready for your third Olympic Games. What was that news like when you received it? Was that last year? Or was that a surprise? Yeah, so actually it's going back quite a while now. We, as you may or may not know, in the UK, we often have um, a pre-selection policy. So there are certain standards. If you hit them one year out from the Games, you can either automatically be nominated a year out or you can be on a discretionary discretionary level, sorry, nominated a year out. Mm. And um, as a returning Olympic medalist, as they as they call it, um, my criteria was slightly different from some of the others. And it basically revolved around that race in Tokyo in 2019. Um, mm. So I did podium in that race, which was criteria. However, there were sort of fairly exceptional circumstances around that race. Mm. Um, mm. The firstly, that um, my two teammates who finished first and second were later disqualified. Um, and secondly, the fact that they they chopped our blooming run in half. Um, so one of those things you could say positively impacted the result that I would have had. And the other one undoubtedly negatively affected the result that I would have had. Um, and it was down to the selectors to make a decision as to whether that performance in Tokyo was enough to have checked that box. They deemed that it had been. And so as a result, I was actually notified of my selection late in 2019. So I've known mm. for nearly, what's that, a year and eight months or something now. And it's an incredibly long time to be sort of waiting for this one race to roll yeah. around, especially as someone who's quite late in my career. Mm. Well, you're not that late. Come on. What are you, 34, <laughs> 35 now? Uh, I am 35 you're just hitting now, the yeah. <laughs> I've heard you talk about this a lot. They about are your how, golden years. Yeah, yeah, coming into my prime now. <laughs> but there are definitely. Uh, what I do you think, think Laura? Yeah. Mid thirties, yeah, mid thirties. I think we both had some of our biggest performances. Yeah, definitely. Do not count yourself out. No, way, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I just think I creak a little bit more than I used to. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I need a little bit more sleep than I used to. And yeah, I think. I think I'm not, I'm absolutely not cutting myself out. I just know that I'm, I'm coming probably closer to the end now. <laughs> I, I, I get what you mean. It's kind of this trying to keep the body going. It takes a lot more work, you know, a lot more massages, a lot more body work, but 
you bring all that strength and endurance mm-hmm. and experience to the table that, oh man, you can only get through time. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. uh, I think those things were almost more powerful than anything else. Um, personally, I think you're in your, in your absolute peak in terms of age for our sport. So I think oh, you've got well, it ready to go and you've got some great <laughs> I will absolutely take that with me for the next few months. And any day I'm having a, a having a creaky old person day, I'll just think, well, Greg says I'm in my prime, so that's fine. <laughs> oh, you're awesome. That's brilliant. And and your, your other two teammates, uh, Jessica Learmonth and Georgia Taylor-Brown, who have just been on fire this last 18 months, you know, mm-hmm. that's quite quite the British team when you consider, you know, someone like a non-Stanford or a Sophie Caldwell aren't making the team. It really is an incredible powerhouse um, we, team. Yeah. Have. We have, for a few cycles now, had such mm. strength in our teams. Um, and especially these last two cycles, I would say it's been the female side that have had mm-hmm. probably greater numbers of athletes, at least, that, that could potentially make the games. And there's always at least one um, who misses out who is a real legitimate athlete, really a legitimate medal contender in uh, in Rio? That was Jody. Um, there's no question that Jody Stimpson could have gone to an Olympic Games and could have performed very, very well and maybe even delivered a medal. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, we were we're from a country that you know it's both our strength and our <laughs> our downfall. We're so mm-hmm. strong that people have to be left off that plane. And in Rio, as I said, it was Jody. And this time round, as you've touched upon there, both non. Sophie and even more recently we've seen great performances from the likes of Beth Potter um Mm -hmm. everyone can't go and that is that is the probably the beauty and the cruelty of elite sport and the Olympic Games specifically um that we're such a strong nation that not not everyone can go Mm. It, it, it is amazing I think you know for my own experience in 2000 I think we had eight Australian men in the top 20 in the world yeah it's phenomenal and it was it was hard to pick three. And then I think, Laura, you've had the same experience with the American women, especially. We have had a little bit. I mean, there's a lot more depth in the British than I think the Americans have had. Mm. But I think in some ways, because you have all that competition, it makes you guys rise to a higher level. Mm. You know, you're just fighting to make your team and all of a sudden you're top of the world. Oh, so I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And I think for me, that was something that was really um, in the forefront of my mind in 2014, that was the first time I won anything, really. I won a, a bronze mm-hmm. in the individual medal, um, individual competition, sorry, at Commonwealth Games, and then a, a gold as the relay. But even winning that bronze medal on that day, I remember thinking, I'm still the fourth best Brit. Because in 2014, <laughs> I was still really ranked behind both Non and Helen. They just happened to be injured at the time of the Commonwealth Games. But both of them really were ranked ahead of me and were what I would have definitely considered better athletes than me at that time. Jodie was the other athlete who just won the Commonwealth Games and I'd finished, you know, 15, 20 seconds behind her. So my thoughts weren't after the initial, you know, delight of winning a major games medal and the excitement of all of that. As my sort of mind began to, began to focus on what was next, I realised that actually I wasn't even good enough at that point to be on the British team for Rio. So I had to step up a whole nother level if I wanted a chance to even go to Rio, let alone to win a medal. And yeah, I, I would completely agree with you, Laura. I think it really nudges you on a level when the the people who are perhaps closest to you, your closest friends, are also your your strongest competitors. Mm. Absolutely. I, I, can't, I still can't believe that you're 
the first and only British woman to have an Olympic medal in triathlon. With this, with the depth that we're talking about, doing homework for this show, I'm like, hang on, it didn't even seem right. You know what I mean? I had to kind of recheck. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It really it's, is. It's outstanding. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's bonkers. And I've said this a few times to people that I firmly believe we could have won medals at pretty much every Olympics that's, that's happened. Obviously, it only went into the Games in Sydney. But we've had people with the potential to win medals at every single Games. And for one reason or another, whether it was, you know, a injury leading into the Games, illness at the Games, maybe someone got their preparations wrong, we hadn't delivered. And we'd had, I think, fifths and fourths and... Um, Actually, maybe fifth was the highest. I think Helen mm. was fifth in, in London. Um, and it seemed unbelievable that we were going into Rio, where all three of us really were were medal contenders, and that we hadn't delivered anything up until that point, and that really we probably could have come out with more than we did from from Rio. But, yeah, the fact that I'm the one who's done it sometimes just, just makes me chuckle a little bit. I think, God, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Take it and run, right? Do you think maybe yeah. because of the competition being so high that everybody's on the edge the whole time, just trying to make the team, that when it comes, you know, to going to the Olympics, mm. you know, a lot of times, well, or to the trials, let's say, but you guys have always had a pretty stiff standard to try and make the team. It was winning world championships or being on the podium to just make your team, right? Yeah. So for us in, in 2016, to make that team, um, to get pre-selected in 2015, you had to podium at both the Rio test event and the grand final. So that was pretty wow. stiff. And myself and Non finished second and third in both. So that was that was, that was was a really cool mm-hmm. moment, actually, the, to finish the grand final, which that year was in Chicago, um, mm. across the line, Non's there big hug there's my housemate we've stamped our ticket to Rio see you next year guys that was wow. that was really fantastic yeah. and also it was that that knowledge of yeah the the policy's hard because if you meet it then you know you are a medal contender and that is why you're getting pre-selection you don't get pre-selection if you're a wishy-washy maybe you might get a medal on a good day you get pre-selected if they really believe and you've really been demonstrated that you can get a medal and that's why there is a pre-selection policy. And there's also actually um, quite a lot of uh, evidence if you've researched it, like maybe I have because I'm a nerd, um, that the people who often perform best at the Olympic Games are the ones who've had no or very, very little selection pressure on the year of the Olympics. Mm, So there's actually something you know there is obviously you want your best athletes who are in their best form at that moment to go but equally if you pressure them to be in such good form in the month two three months pre prior to the games it's so hard for them to then pick that up and keep that momentum or even lift again for the olympics whereas the ones who maybe have had that um knowledge that a they're either selected or b they're maybe from a nation where they don't have selection pressure they are often the ones that come through and perform the best at the Olympic Games. So there is a little bit of a, a rationale for having that as well, I think. No, I agree. I, and you're not a nerd, unless I guess we're all nerds, because that's exactly the conversations Laura and I have around the dinner table every yeah. all the time is about, you know, we look at the countries, you know, whether it be, you know, Switzerland or Canada and, and their, their medal tally, tallies at the Olympics. And we're like, well, how did they have to, did yeah. they have to perform a year out, six months out, three months out? No. They had to perform over the years, you know, on the World Series and they had to have a certain ranking 
And then they were chosen and, you know, able to prepare for the Olympics. And I mean, we've seen it very much with the Australian men. Australia still doesn't have an Olympic medal for men in triathlon. Which is we have unbelievable. Four, unbelievable. We have a fourth and a sixth. I, I have a fourth. Miles Stewart has a sixth. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think we have another couple of top tens, but it's a, and I think a lot of it has been this, this, this absolute, you have to perform at these trial events. And it's, it's hard, especially in your 20s where you don't have as much experience to get up for these one-off events and then try and do it again a year later. Um, you know, I watched them, the American team with Gwen Jorgensen and they were kind of making her jump through some hoops before Rio. And she, you know, how many races did she go undefeated in the World Series in 2014 and 2015? What a, whatever it was, was insane. She just, I felt for all of you that I had to keep racing this woman that just kept turning up and yeah. but they still wouldn't on the Olympic team right away. And I was like, you're going to make her do trials? And I'm like, don't add that to a plate, you know. Um, but it is interesting. It's an interesting conversation on how to select teams. Um, but obviously, the way you've you got to be happy. Three Olympics, you've done it three times. Amazing. God, I mean, <laughs> I, I still find that a little bit bonkers, to be honest, that uh, you're very I'm, I'm going to a third Olympics and – that this is this is where that little girl who just loves sport. That's this is where I'm at now. At 35, I'm still doing it, and it's my job. It's my profession. I didn't even know that was a thing when I was a child, and yet here I am, and I'm going to a third games, and I'm going as someone who already has won a medal. And yes, I want to achieve more, but I've sort of I've got a medal in my pocket, and that, that, mm-hmm. that's quite a nice little Absolutely. safety net to have going into another games where actually you're sort of shooting for the for the stars, but hey, it's okay if you miss. <laughs> exactly. Well, I just asked Simon Whitfield, you know, you have your, your medal in your pocket and then you just go, oh, well, I'll just go throw caution to the wind. And, you know, that's huge, isn't it? To take that kind of expectation off yourself. It's a bit like a free hit. It's like <laughs> you spend your whole life kind of wanting one shot, right? At just just desperately winning a medal and I, I I appreciate I'm speaking to two people who've come agonizingly close so like sorry if this comes across in any way insensitive but you you absolutely, no you absolutely do you know you put everything into trying to win a medal and then once you have one of those there is perhaps both a weight of expectation but also a little bit of freedom that comes with it mm-hmm. and anything you do from there is, is a bonus because once you've won an Olympic medal you don't ever lose that that's not going away um so yeah, I can forever have that Olympic medal, and whilst I've got that there, I'm going to try and achieve other cool things too. That is so well said, and and you do not offend us at all. We, <laughs> the fact that we both have force, we have a very loving relationship now in our family, and the only difference is Laura was six seconds off third, and I was eight thick, eight seconds <laughs> off third. But otherwise, <laughs> so she is slightly better. I'm going to give her that, but it, it kept the peace in the family. So we, we have absolutely no regrets, but I appreciate you bringing you know, the yeah. way you said all of that. Now, before we go on any further, I have a huge congratulations that I want to, you're getting married. You got married, excuse me, to uh, Reese Davey um, this past year. Um, I guess the big question I have, I know it was a COVID wedding. Is there going to be a big splash coming, coming out of COVID, maybe post-Olympics? That is the plan. Yes. So firstly, thank you. Um, yeah, we did. We we booked a wedding in January last year, which, as it turns out, was not the right time to book a wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. So we booked the wedding for November of last year. 
And obviously the world went crazy. And as the months kind of ticked by, we still very much kind of just felt like, oh, I'll be fine by November. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And then we got Mm -hmm. to uh, the beginning of September. And by that point, we were like, no, this is not going to happen. The rules in the UK are pretty strict. And uh, at that point in September, you were allowed to have a wedding with 30 people present. And then by the end of September, that had changed to 15 um, as we sort of went into a second wave here. And yeah, we really had to make a decision. And our, the venue that we had booked and, you know, we paid all our deposits for our catering, for the venue, for all of that kind of stuff. They were great. They said, you know, obviously we can't host your wedding this year, but we will um, put you a date in basically same weekend following year if you want it. So we moved our moved our sort of party, if you like, a, a year forward and then had to make a decision on actually did, did we want to get married this year though? And and uh, we sort of thought about it for a little while. And the overwhelming feeling we both had was that we just wanted to be married now and that we'd been together a long time. I think it was over, over six years at that point we've been together. And we have a whole life together. We own a house together. We have a dog together. And yeah, it won't change that much. But we just felt like we wanted to be married. And last year was a really rough year for so many people in so many ways. And we felt like maybe we could do something really cool and really special and very different to a normal <laughs> wedding. We dragged our nearest and dearest up a hill. Uh, we ended up doing it at the end of October. It was absolutely hammering it down with rain. Um, we um, all stood round, all socially distanced on this hill, all 15 of us because mm-hmm. we weren't allowed any more. And um, these hills are really close to where both my parents and Reese's parents live and they're kind of our favourite area in England. So we were able to incorporate this special area in, in 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 a way that we'd always thought we'd like to incorporate these hills in our wedding. But how the hell are we going to do that? How are we going to get, you know, 100 guests or whatever it is up a hill? Um, but yeah, we, we made it happen just in a really small, tight-knit way. And it was it was it was really special. My wedding dress got absolutely soaked, um, and we are now hoping to do you know the big party later on this year. And like you said, it will hopefully also be this kind of coming out of COVID party where people can actually finally mm. be in the same room together. You know, there won't be limits on how many people can sit at a table, how close you can sit to people. People can hug one another. We can just dance the night away and just. That would be really special if we can have that later this year. So I'm still hopeful, um, but I am not banking on it because COVID just does things. <laughs> it just seems to keep on going, doesn't it? But yeah. I mean, isn't it funny, you know, what, what you say and just we, we will never take for granted hugging, dancing, being in a room with 100 people and being silly. At all. I mean, I've always loved weddings you just asked laura I'm, yeah. but i love the full thing i i bet you're the life uh, and soul aren't you greg no you know what I'm, I'm prepared to be the first idiot to get up on on the dance floor every, somebody has every to party it. needs one of those everybody needs one but you know what i also i need i need the the ceremony i don't even mm-hmm. mind if it's a long catholic ceremony i need that because it for me it's like the the restraint you know you you have to sit patiently with everybody and it can be quite lovely and emotional i quite enjoy the whole wedding part and then it's like the unleashing is the the, the past you know the party after with the reception um so i really really hope that well either you can postpone it another year but you do get to have that big party whenever it gets to happen yeah <laughs> yeah no we're, we're really hopeful that we do get to do it in front of all of our family and friends and 
you know, it's even things like having photos with all of your nearest and dearest. We couldn't even really do that properly last time because you're so limited on mm. who can be there and who can be near you to take a photo and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I really hope we get to do it. Um, watch the space. <laughs> yeah. We've always found that people actually make an effort for a wedding. You mm. know, they'll fly in, they'll really enjoy themselves. And mm-hmm. it's like one of the that and funerals. But, well, funerals but, and weddings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people. <laughs> When you're dead and your wedding, they're the only two times that people actually, in your life, they'll, they'll drop everything and really try and make it happen. I agree. And it yeah. is really special to have everybody there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so, hopefully by doing it this year, we'll be, we will be able to have people there. So yeah, yeah we've mm-hmm. got our fingers crossed. I'm, I'm curious, how are you, you know, how are you managing your, your married life, you know, your personal married life with Reese, but then him being your coach, is that... Is that a constant working process or how are you guys able to sort of manage that? Because it can't be easy. Well, I think um, we we evolved into that really. We didn't sort of jump straight from being partners to being coach athlete. We kind of went from, we started dating and then uh, a few months into that, I wanted some help with my bike program specifically. Um, Reese was still an athlete at the time. He had a couple of coaching qualifications, but he wasn't coaching um but I felt like I trusted him enough to sort of ask some advice and so he evolved I guess into writing this whole bike program for me and he was doing that um really for sort of a couple of years through to Rio um but even in that time I guess it developed a bit more to the fact that he was kind of doing more hands-on day-to-day stuff managing the program reporting back to the run coach on how I was doing um, you know, he'd be that go between. So if I woke up really shattered before a run session, he'd speak to the run coach before and say, Hey, look, this is how she woke up today. And maybe we need to rein that in a little bit, or actually, I think she's going really good. I think you could push her a bit more today or whatever. He was kind of that go between. He was already sort of really heavily involved. And Mm. it wasn't until after Rio that we moved away from Leeds where we'd lived. Um, I mean, we had been there for about seven years. I'd been there for three years. Um, we moved away from that center and came down to Bath. Um, and Reese was sort of uh, given the role, if you like, of being the head coach here. Um, so it's our third center in England. There's one in Wales, one in Scotland, three national centers in England. And at the, before mm-hmm. that, we only had those two centers. And we've got so many young athletes coming through that if you sort of were coming coming to sort of university age and you wanted to go on and do triathlon, you basically had four centres in the whole of Great Britain to choose from. Um, And we didn't really have the space for all these, this influx of kids. Where where were they going to go? So British Triathlon really wanted another option that they had some kind of funding in. I mean, obviously you can go and do triathlon at other places, I should say. Of course that's possible. But the places that had some kind of funding and support from British Triathlon, there was so few of them um, that they really felt they wanted another one. So that's where Bath Centre sort of, came into existence it's been a center in many years gone by and then it's sort of gone into nothingness in the triathlon world and then now it's sort of come back again a little bit and yeah so Reese was given that that job he he got the job here we made Mm. the move move down here and so he started then coaching the whole center and I'm just sort of one of his athletes if you like and I think for us we went step by step there that that whole thing happened over about three years going from oh can you help me with my bike program to hang on he's the pool he's the coach on deck every day and he's the coach who writes my swim bike run 
and sort of, you know, we we put it all together as a team. And what I think we do really well is we we do work as a team. Yes, Reese is the mastermind, if you like. He's the one who has the ideas and he's the one who says, I think this is what we need to do next. But equally, if I say no, if I say I don't think that's right, he will either go away and think about it, work out how to persuade me that I'm wrong, or he will accept that maybe I've got a point. And I think we 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 balance that pretty well. I think, you know, that maybe every now and again, there might be a few heated words. And yes, on Paul's side, every now and again, I have to remember that he's the coach and he's not my husband at that moment. So don't mm. speak to him like he's my husband, speak to him like he's the coach. And, and that definitely was something that took a little while to get used to when we first moved down here. Um, and he also has to learn not to react to me like I'm his wife saying something to him. I'm an athlete who's tired or disgruntled or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I think on the whole, we we just balance it quite well. And um, I, I don't think we would have got this far through having done it for this long, um, having also done it for years and then got married. I don't think we would have lasted. Um, and I also think that I, I just don't think there's anybody who cares as much as he does about me. He's not, there's no one who's going to be as invested in me as he is. Um, and so for that, even when there are days when I disagree with him or when I'm cursing him for whatever session he's given me that I don't really want to do, I, I still respect his decision. And I still do believe that he, A, knows what he's talking about. I think he's very, very into his research. So he checks up everything that he wants me to do. And I believe that he's doing it for the right reasons. And for that, I trust in him. And that, I guess, underpins any of the little arguments that we might have is this underlying trust that actually it will work. And hey, we've been relatively successful. So it's all good. <laughs> oh, that is so well put all of that. A quick mini break. I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up for Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. If you want to see all your key metrics like your pace, distance, stroke rate, and heart rate while you're swimming, you need the Form Smart Swim goggles. Go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off or you can use code Greg15 at checkout. Take advantage of the great sale going on now at Hyperice. Plus get 10% off all Hyperice products using the exclusive Greg Bennett Show discount code Greg21 at checkout. Go to hyperice.com and use code Greg21. And I think, you know, what's, there's been a number of people that I've had on the number of guests I've had on the show. When we talk about the coach athlete relationship, that already is a relationship. It is a marriage of two people, you know, that are trying to commit Absolutely. to a, a big performance and, and you, whether you have a married life or you have a marriage in, in athletic performance and, uh, and you, you know, you guys are much the same as how Laura and I operated for many, many years. Well, and I was going to was, say you worked in a similar way, right? Of course. And, and we go, we both took on our roles. I think, you know, I would write the overall program, but then Laura was, you know, more involved in the nutrition and the recovery side. And, and so we took, we took our roles and we worked together. And like you said, it wasn't always perfect, you know, yeah. but it was, you know, it was, it was how we operated. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think you are going to be your best coach, but 
the ability to think clearly when you're in those push phases and when it really counts each session as to whether or not you're gaining or you're about to be injured, it's so good to have somebody who is basically day in, day out with you. He can read you completely. And then he's got the background knowledge for you. That's fantastic teamwork in that. You know, I think one of the advantages you have is that Reese isn't trying to be an athlete at the same time. I mean, maybe he was for the beginning of your relationship, but towards maybe towards the end, I mean, you can expound on that a little bit better if you're saying, oh no, he was working out as much as I was. But I guess when he was taking over all the coaching with all these guys, he had to be probably focused more on you guys as the athletes and probably not as much on himself. And I think that's a bit of an advantage that he he could read you probably way better than even sometimes you can read yourself. Like you said, you really trust in his perspective and and knowing you very well. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And he he also has this absolute overriding confidence in me that sometimes I don't have in myself. And that to the point where he often holds me back quite a lot on my running. Um, we, we've worked really hard on my swim bike elements for, well, for years now, but he, he puts everything into, you know, the, the not not just this is what works we know this works other people do this it's well why does this work and what could we do to to improve it and how can we make you even better and so he puts tons of energy into that and then expects me also to put all my energies into that which I do and then frequently there'll be this conversation of okay so when am I going to start running a bit more and when am I going to start putting run sessions in and when can I go back to doing two run sessions a week and he's like, Vicky, you don't need it. You don't need it. We know that off this amount of weeks, you will be ready. We need to hold your nerve. And I mean, I've, I, we're now what the beginning of May we're recording this. I've done mm-hmm. two track sessions. I've only just started on the track because before that it would have been too early. And it's like holding your nerve. And that's at the point I started doing track sessions. That's when I brought in two run sessions a week. Before that, I've only been doing one. I only started one run session a week in I think it was either the end of January, maybe the beginning of February. Um, before that, all my running was just uh, easy mileage. So we really kind of rein that in. Um, but that's because he's got this this belief and this this not just belief. He's got the he's got the data, you know, in front of him. He's got the years of what I've done beforehand, and you know what I can do in testing and all that kind of stuff that he. He knows what what I need, probably sometimes more than I do, because every now and again, undoubtedly, I'll have a bit of a freak out and say, oh, my God, I'm not running enough. Oh, I'm so behind. Uh, I need to do more run sessions. Oh, what you know, we're, we're making a, we're making a mistake here. And he's the one who sort of talks me down off the cliff and goes, no, 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 you're exactly where you need to be. You're fine. <laughs> Exactly. You're a passionate athlete that wants to do their best. <laughs> yeah. Exactly what it look like. <laughs> yeah. But how how good does it feel when you finally get to you know, it's like you he's letting he's releasing you, you know, it's like how good does it yeah. feel to suddenly go on the track when you haven't been able to do it for a while? And you're like, yay. Oh, and then you can I really optimize it. those workouts rather than you know, the drudgery of turning up to the track every Tuesday or every Saturday or whatever it is. It's kind of like, yay, I get to play again. You know? Yeah, it really does feel like that for me. Like the the run sessions are still the the hard run sessions are still the things I relish the most. Um, especially the track. I have a bit of a background of running track as a teenager, and you know, I I moved over to triathlon at eighteen nineteen, so I never really went through the kind of full career of where I could get to with with track running. Um, 
but I still love it the most. It's still the session that gives me the highest high when I finished it. Like there's nothing like that post-track fatigue, but also the high Mm. that comes with it. And when I start to really get into my stride, both kind of metaphorically and actually physically, I just feel so good. It's the one thing I feel like I can do and it's it's completely natural for me. And uh, there's nothing that kind of is better than that, especially when you spend a lot of time fighting, sort of fighting for that extra second in the pool <laughs> or fighting for those extra five watts on the bike. And then you actually oh, just get released into the thing that you're naturally good at. And it feels so nice. <laughs> Oh, I love the passion in which you speak. I think it's fantastic. Let, let's do this because you, you did just touch on, let's rewind the clock a little bit just so we can get a bit more of a background on, on how your passion for, well, triathlon, but um, all endurance sports started. How old were you and, and and what number are you in siblings in your family? Because I've got this little survey I'm doing with all the athletes, you know, all the guests that are coming on. Yeah, I've <laughs> heard about this. Um, I'm going to fit nicely <laughs> into your survey actually because I am... Oh, yeah. um, the second slash fourth, um, depending on whether you count my much older half siblings. So I'm, gotcha. yeah, I'm the youngest. I am the Perfect. youngest. You I have right into um, the survey. <laughs> yeah, I fit nicely into your cohort there. Um, yeah. I've got, yeah, I've got older brother and sister who are my half brother and sister who are sort of eleven years and thirteen years older than me, and then my brother who is only two years older than me or just under two years older than me. And I would say he absolutely was the one that I really, really sort of grew up with in that real sort of sense of the word. And mm. he was the one that I spent my entire life trying to be better than, compete with, keep up with. Um, yeah, everything he did, I wanted to do. Every time he had friends over and they were playing some kind of competition in the garden, I wanted to play. Um, when he went up to um, secondary school so high school what you what you guys would call high school um and sort of tried out for the cross-country team and then was running laps around our field with my dad I wanted to do it but my dad's saying no Zicky you're you're too young what are you doing you're nine I'm like no I want to run with you and you know that 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 has permeated my life you know just always wanting to do whatever he did but do it better even I used to compete against him I tell this story to people all the time I used to compete against him who could eat breakfast the fastest I mean he didn't know it was a that was a competition that we were having but we absolutely were I can tell you in my mind um and obviously I always won so this is you know this gives you a little flavor of who the little monster that I was to grow up with and it's also probably no surprise that he is super laid back. So he's in a lot of ways my opposite. He's super laid mm. back. He's very happy to almost sort of take the long way around, like happy-go-lucky, like, yeah, everything will be fine. Whereas I'm like, no, let's go. <laughs> let's go do it now. Um, so, yeah, I think that is probably the uh, the, the, the underpinning <laughs> competitive streak that is just in, oh, in that, me. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. Both Laura and I are, are smiling and laughing and nodding our heads because I think this is almost like the uh, key ingredient um, for success in in some of these brutal endurance sports like like a triathlon. I mean, it's this ability to keep up with your older sibling and be competitive in every aspect. Um, you know, I've said it on the show a few times, just trying to keep up with my older brother who is stronger, faster, um, more agile, more athletic. Um, but I just love trying to compete. And then I realized, hang on, if we run further and further around the block, 
um, hang on, I'm getting closer. Now I'm actually in the lead. Okay, I'll just keep going longer until I wear him out. <laughs> well, one of the I, one of the stories that my mum tells is that when um, my brother had started school, but I hadn't yet, so I must be like three or something, at the three or four at the oldest at this point. We went to the sports day for my brother's school, and he'd done this. Um, they had what they called the sprint, which was you know straight down the straight, and then a long distance, which was probably only actually like twice the distance of of the straight it wasn't really long distance I mean these kids are somewhere between ages like five and ten um mm. and my brother had done a race where he'd gone around the long loop he'd done you know the long distance and they had a, an event for like, the toddlers for the the little ones who weren't yet at school and we were just supposed to dash down half the straight that was it and apparently I just took off around the long loop I was just gone um and they were sending all these staff to like basically like bring me back from like the far side of the loop um because I just wanted to, to do more <laughs> I just wanted to go and compete with whatever my brother had done and carry on going yeah, yeah he's out there I'm going too yeah that's brilliant yeah. I could just see three or four now that we have a three-year-old daughter I can actually visualize it so it's even funnier that's yeah. so great <laughs> And so you 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 grew up there. You were a swimmer, right? Before a runner, or how did that work? Yeah. So again, this is this is um, my brother's story of his of his part in what um, my success, if you like, what he played in my success. He will always say that um, it's his fault that I ended up where I ended up because he was playing football on a Saturday morning or soccer, as, as uh, Americans would would call it. Um, on a Saturday morning and my mum needed something for me to do because I would drive her crazy otherwise. And at that point, I'm already massively into sport. I'm six years old and the swimming pool is right opposite the football pitches. And so it just sort of worked out, right, we'll go to swim classes, swim lessons. They're right opposite, ties in nicely for timings. And yeah, so I just started swimming then. I was six. I went through all the little levels of the to sort of um, learn to swim classes pretty quickly and ended up in the swimming squad, like the actual club there um, within a year. So I was about seven. And then I moved on to a, a bigger local um, club. So that club was really small. I only used to swim sort of three times a week for 45 minutes at a time, I think. And the pool was like 15 or 16 meters. It's this tiny little pool. And uh, I went to the sort of our county championships at age 10 and won two events off swimming in that pool. And I think everyone was like, who on earth are you? You don't do any training. How has this happened? So I went on then to the the bigger club, if you like, in the area where I could swim in a, a normal size pool and actually do some normal training. So, yeah, I swam from age six all the way through till I went to university. And even when I went to university, I was still um, part of the swimming team. Um, and uh, for running again, for me, that was when I went up to high school. So when I was 11, um, I remember trying out for the cross country team as my brother had done a couple of years before me. Um, I also remember in the changing rooms beforehand, hearing the girls kind of speculating as to who might be really good and who was going to win. And there was a girl called Manda and apparently Manda was a good runner. So we should all watch out for her. And I remember just thinking, well, I'm going to win. So, um, and it's so arrogant. Like, it's so unbelievable. Like, the confidence of the 11-year-old. I mean, I'd love some of that back. But I was, oh, I was adamant that I was going to go and win this race. And so, of course, I did. Um, and then became part of the school team from, from there on in. So I started cross-country first at age 11 and then moved into track stuff as well when I was about 14 or 15, I guess. And when I went to uni at 18, I was doing both. I was doing both kind of side by side, um, mm. running sort of in a club, doing track races. Um, I think I, 
I the year I went to university, I won um, a national 1500 meter race. And then at that point, I think I was probably coming to terms with the fact that as much as swimming was my first love, I probably wasn't going to make it as a swimmer. I wasn't going to ever improve to the level I needed to. Um, as with a lot of swimmers, I probably peaked at about 16. And uh, yeah, I went to university, joined both clubs separately, both the swimming and the, the athletics. And for me, the biggest thing about that was, oh, this is great. I don't have to travel anywhere. Having, you know, juggled the the two sports with the schoolwork, mm. the homework, the, obviously the actual being in school, the social life that a teenager wants to have, all of that. Um, big shout out to my mum with that. Um, yeah, having juggled all that for years, then going to university was amazing because it was all in one place. So sort of cut mm. down all that, you know, travel time to and from. Um, but within my first ooh, probably month or two at university, the head coach of the university, the, the triathlon set up in Loughborough there, um, sort of invited me in for a quick chat and wanted to see whether I'd be interested. And I sort of, I kind of remember, I came out of that chat and rang my mum and I was like, mum, I think I've just been railroaded into start a triathlon and I, I don't know if I want to do it. And it was all a bit, it was all a bit soon. I, I sort of came out of that chat having agreed to like quit the swimming club and quit the athletics club and I would be part of the triathlon team now. And I was like, how did that happen? So my mum sort of was like, Vicky, I think if you're not ready for this, which I clearly wasn't from the things I was sort of saying, she's like, I think you're going to have to go back and tell him that maybe you're not ready for that yet. So I did, I went wow. back and he was actually really good. He still was like, well, in that case, maybe you can come and join us for some riding on the weekends or we ride on a Wednesday mm. afternoon if you've not got if you've not got a swim session and maybe you can come and do some strength work with us in the gym. So they sort of tried a bit more of a softly, softly approach and um, it paid off because within six months I was I was in. That was it. I, I sort of converted yeah. across. <laughs> who is the name of that coach? Because he's quite the salesman, obviously. Who Who was that? He was a guy called Dan Salcedo, and at the time he was the yeah the head coach of uh, the British setup in in Loughborough. And he'd actually um, before I even got to Loughborough, he'd rang my um, he found my my home phone number. God knows how it's probably on some kind of application form somewhere, and rang um, to try and do the sales pitch. Then when I was when I was at home, and it was the day I got my university results, and he wanted to make sure that I got my results and that I was definitely going to Loughborough. Um, and I was like, yes, yes, I've got my results. I'll be there, and tried to sort of sell me the triathlon dream. And I think at the time, I just remember thinking he needs to stop talking now because I want to go down the pub with my mates and celebrate. Um, <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then we did all the same again once I got to university and third time round, you know, sort of must have been around Easter of my of my first year at university when I finally sort of went, yeah, you know what, this triathlon thing looks quite cool. And actually, they clearly want me involved. You know, they were they were really mm. making a play for having me involved in their in their squad and that they, they believed I could be good at that sport. And that that was um really nice to feel as as a young athlete especially one who'd gone to this massive university like the best sports university in the UK um it's really renowned world renowned amazing facilities I'd always wanted to go there and then I got there as a swimmer and a runner and I was just one of so many swimmers and runners who were of a very similar or better standard than I was I was not special in any way going there as a as a runner or as a swimmer but yet this triathlon group were like, no, you could be really good. Like, we think you could be really good. Come join us. We'll help you out. We can get you a bike, like all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it, it paid off. I, I, Dan, if you're listening to this show, and I hope you are, congrats, mate. 
he probably is he still works at british triathlon so he's probably yeah well um, thank you thank you for bringing dicky to our beautiful (laughs) sport of triathlon i think that's some great recruiting and just a great great story just on a side note here what what did you end up studying i did human biology yeah i've always been quite fascinated with the the body how it works and yeah, I didn't actually enjoy all of my degree. There was a lot of stuff in it that at the time I didn't appreciate. Now I would do. There's a lot of psychology in my degree, which at the time I had no interest in. But ironically, now I actually think I'd be really interested in it. So maybe I should go back and do it over again. Uh, well, That's yeah, great. I just had Sarah True on the show and she's gone back to do a doctorate in uh, psychology. Yeah, so absolutely. I know. And it's it, it shows that you can, it's never too late. Daniela Reef has recently gone back to do university studies as well. And yeah, maybe, who knows? <laughs> well, yeah, good. On, uh, look, that's the thing. You're only 35. You've still got all these years in front of you. Now, wh- 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 when was, um, you know, you went through university, you, you found triathlon, but was there a moment that you kind of went, okay, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to go all in or was it just a gradual process? No, there really was. Um, I... I always say that university was both the best time of my life, but also in a lot of ways, the worst sort of for me in an athletic sense. So I definitely had that feeling, like I said, of going to university and suddenly being like, I'm actually not that good here. Like, whereas before I was considered really good and really promising. Now I'm here and I'm in with all the big fish. I feel really small. And Mm. on top of that, there was this element of, freedom, the independence of going to university, um, sort of having to look after yourself for the first time. Even the way you study is very different to school where you're much more spoon fed. When you go to university, it's a case of you go to the lectures and you've got to take down the important bits and all of that. I wasn't wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very good at managing my life as a proper adult at 18, 19. I I just, I wasn't really equipped for it yet. And Mm. I definitely bumbled my way through university if you like I did okay in my degree um I was very average as a triathlete I was sort of racing mostly domestic level racing occasionally I'd race a bit of French Grand Prix if I got selected for a team um I raced one world juniors um which would have been like about my third ever fourth ever triathlon race uh, really early on when I just started doing triathlon but really, the rest of my time at university, in terms of my kind of sporting life and my career, is just like this black hole of where mm. I didn't really achieve anything. But at the same time, I had a lot of really formative experiences. I made some of my closest friends who are still really, really close friends of mine to this day. Um, and I don't regret it because I think I came out of that phase, out of that university time, feeling like, now I'm ready. Now I want to do this properly. I don't want to die thinking what if having squandered any potential talent if you like that I had and I really wanted to to have a go and so I decided I was going to commit a year I knew I had enough kind of savings my parents had said you know we'll help you for a year as well so I was I was very fortunate in that regard and I decided well I'm gonna I'm gonna go all in for a year and I didn't really know what I was doing Um, I absolutely shouldn't have been allowed to sort of look after myself as much as I was. Um, I had a coach, but then he sort of got, um, taken away from me. He was, he was employed in a different area, so he had to leave. And so I was, I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants, to be honest. I was kind of going swim, bike, run. Yeah. That's what triathlon is. I'll do some swim, bike, run. I didn't really know what it took to be really, really good. And by the end of that year, or sort of, I guess it'd been about 
six, seven, maybe even eight months or so of, of I'd moved away from Loughborough, away from university. I was trying something new. I was trying to do it on my own and I wasn't really succeeding. And I went to national championships and I came last. I got lapped on the run. It was it was pretty dire. Um, and oh, I remember dear. thinking... What year, was, what year was that? Sorry to interrupt, that was, but what year was that? That was 2009. So that would have been this time of year, May mm. time, 2009. Um, and I was awful. Um, I remember it was Non's first ever Olympic distance triathlon and she lapped me. I remember, oh God, brilliant. She's only just started this sport and she's already that much better than me. Um, <laughs> like it was, I was honestly, I was terrible. I was absolutely atrocious. And I went home and I, I mean, I don't think I was a hundred percent my best that day anyway. I think I was a little bit sick, but to be fair, I was still pretty poor. Um, so I sort of went home yeah. and I kind of got myself together and I had a bit of a, a bit of a better month I was starting to kind of find a little bit of a bit of a rhythm with my training but still very lost to be honest very much not really sure what I was doing and where my where this sport could go for me or whether really I just needed to get a real job and I, I was I was pretty close to that I was I was definitely thinking you know I'll get through this season and if I don't have a turning point I'm, I'm gone um, because I'm not mm. going to do it forever off no money off no results off no promise of trying to live off my parents. I was absolutely not willing to do that. And I got I got a lucky break. I got a phone call from Darren Smith. And he had heard about me from a friend of his who was a coach in the UK who knew me, knew what I'd done as a teenager in both swimming and running, but sort of knew that I was a bit lost and a bit kind of having to fend for myself. I was outside of the British system at that point. I wasn't funded quite rightly because I was pretty bad um <laughs> and um yeah I think this guy this coach Chris Jones he um he said to Darren look if you've got a space for a girl and you're looking for a Brit I think she could be something I think she could be quite good but she needs she needs guidance and maybe she could be something for you so he rang me and two days later I got on a flight and went to Switzerland packed up my life and about six weeks four to six weeks later I qualified for world under 23s um and then I came fourth at world under 23s that year and three four months before I'd finished last at British nationals I've been lapped um couldn't run faster than 41 ish minutes for a 10k and then I went to world under 23s I ran 36 something which at the time was huge for me um mm put in this brilliant all-round performance really like especially when you compare it to where I'd been earlier that year and yeah from from there on in um my my career became a career before then it was <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it but from that point on that's so I love all of that because I love obviously Darren Smith I've talked about him on this show before incredible triathlon coach he had an incredible squad um Sarah True just Sarah Groff knee uh yeah. she just spoke about him on that and what he did for so many of you in that kind of launch pad onto the world scene, you know, he, he had a very good eye for talent. He had a very good, very good at training, obviously. Um, just, just incredible. And, and um, Chris Jones, you know, he's an old friend of ours as well. Just these, these people looking after and trying to help guide the young talent. It's just I, I love that. I think it's fantastic. I'm, I just brought up the results actually of the 2004, um, oh, sorry, 2009 under 23 world champs. And uh, Paula Finley was in third just in front yeah, of yeah. Um, Jody Stim, uh, Stimson, yeah, who you've just talked about earlier in the show. 
And then Holly Avil, also from Britain. So the British went one, yeah. two, and four at that under-23 World Champs. Wow. Yeah, Incredible. and I was gutted. I was I was <laughs> gutted at the finish of that race because I couldn't believe that I'd come fourth and that, that it was the other two girls were my teammates and they'd come first and second. I was like, who is this? Paula Finlay. She's come in here and I don't know who she is. And not that anyone would know who I was at that point anyway, so I don't know what I'm talking about. No. But like, who is this Canadian girl who's ruined the British party? And then the next year was Paula's massive skyrocket to sort of stardom and the triathlon scene when she won mm. in London. So by that point, mm. it was like, ah, oh, that's who Paula is. <laughs> <laughs> the incredibly talented, fast, hardworking redhead, from, you know, yeah. from Canada. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. I mean, that really is. I mean, there has been, I, I, I love looking back at that history and often the juniors and under 23s and seeing the races that you've all had. And then the careers that have blossomed, you know, beyond that. I think it's fantastic. Let's let's shift a little bit and let's discuss some of the incredible highs that you've had over this last, you know, 12 years, 13 years especially. Um, qualifying for your first Olympics, what was that like? Oh, that was stressful. <laughs> I mean, it was... I remember where I was when we won the Olympic bid. I remember the room I was in, the friends I was with in Loughborough, still at university. I was doing triathlon at the time, but as aforementioned, pretty badly. Um, and we just won this, uh, this the Olympic bid. We were having an Olympic Games in seven years' time in London. Um, most of my family are from London. I never grew up there, but a lot of my family are. My dad's a Londoner. My mum was born in London. And... I'm like, oh my gosh, the Olympic Games, this thing that has inspired me since I was six years old and I watched it on TV, is happening in my country, in my lifetime, in my athletic lifetime. Like that is the stuff of dreams for a start. And my next thought was, well, how am I going to get there? Um, and at that point, I wasn't even entirely sure it was going to be triathlon because things weren't going so well. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to be there and I knew that I knew that it would be unreal, unbelievable, but I just obviously didn't quite know how I was going to get there. And that was 2000 and what would that be? 2005. So even all the way then through until 2009, when things started to turn around for me, I have a hope in hell really of going to the Olympic games. And from 2009 to 2012, those were the years I was in Darren's group. And mm -hmm. after that fourth place at, at uh, the Under-23 Worlds the following year, I had some pretty good results in my first year racing any of the senior races. It's the first year I'd done any World Series races. And I think I had a couple of fifth places, a sixth place or so. I was, I think I was about eighth overall in the, in the series. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd sort of put myself in a position where Helen was very much, Helen Jenkins was very much our number one girl. Um, but I was really battling it out for sort of number two girl. And so it became a real, you know, real possibility for me that I could qualify. And then the following year, sort of the pre-Olympic year, 2011, I had one or two sort of little niggles. I wasn't really performing as well as I'd done in 2010. And uh, auto selection for us in 2011 was, again, incredibly tough. It was two podiums at two big World Series races. And I just wasn't a podium athlete yet. You know, I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to achieve that. So I knew really for me to get selected, it was going to be the following year. And we had a policy put in place that essentially stated if you were not considered an outright medal contender, you would only go if you were um, a team player who could be a, a domestique, uh, you know, would, could, could contribute to the medal winning potential of the other athletes. So I had to sort of, 
engineer myself into someone who could be considered good enough to assist Helen Mm. in her quest to win Olympic glory, win Olympic gold. And uh, it was a tough, it was a tough ask. So with Darren, we, we went about trying to make me the best swim biker that I could be for that period of time, especially I was barely doing any running. Um, I remember being sick in the build up to the last couple of big races before the selection period. So the very beginning of that year, we had the, the World Series in Sydney and I was terrible. I had one of my worst ever races. Um, and at that point, I had two more shots. So it was the San Diego World Series and then there was also the Madrid World Series. And after that, that was the cutoff. They were going to make their decision. So I had two more races really to sort of show what I could do. And we went away to Sedona in Arizona for a training camp. And I got there, got a chest infection. It was really bad. I couldn't get out of bed. Had to go and get some nuclear strength antibiotics to sort of kick this out. And I barely trained for like about 10 days and then had to sort of work out, right, how am I going to get into the right shape to to deliver something in in San Diego? And um, turned it around. I came fifth in San Diego and then went home, had about two weeks at home for Madrid. I think I finished about, I want to say seventh or eighth in Madrid. And both of those races, I swam and biked really well. And that sort of went in my favor. But even then, I didn't know for sure that I'd done enough. It was very much a case of the discretion of the panel, whether they thought I was the right person for the job. And there were, you know, three or four other British girls who could have easily, you know, done that job instead. Um, and I know now that it really was a, 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 a very close call as to whether they chose me or someone else in the end. And it, it was me who sort of got the nod. So finding out that I was in was just the biggest relief. Just, oh my gosh, I'm actually going, like I'm going to, firstly to an Olympic Games, like childhood ambition, yes. Um, but also I'm going to one that's happening in my home country, in a city that means a lot to me. Um, I knew it was going to be epic. I knew they would, we would host a really good games in London. And uh, from there on in, it was just about trying to be as good as I could be for that day in London for Helen. Um, and then obviously I got involved in the crash, so it went really well. yes but I wonder I mean on all of that I know it wasn't the performance that maybe you or Helen wanted come you know I mean Helen says it's still probably one of the greatest fights she's ever had and performances of her life because she was carrying injury and and even Johnny Brownlee said that on his interview on the show he just said yeah the the guts of Helen was just extraordinary because I think you all knew what she was going through oh Um, we'd been training with her in the build-up and she could barely run she would have a plan for Mm. a week and it would change daily depending on how much pain she could tolerate, depending on whether she needed another injection in her knee or whether she needed to go to the osteopath or whether she just got up and realized she would not be able to run that day. And I remember once asking her, how long are you going to run today, Hells? And she was like, as long as my legs will take me. And she was Mm. just battling every day through it. And to, to hold on as long as she did in that race, I still think was absolutely phenomenal. And because no one knew, no one knew she was injured. No, no one knew, knew how badly injured she was. And yeah, as Johnny said, the guts of her was was super impressive. No, it really was. But I wonder how much that Olympic experience then, did that help you going into Rio, which, you know, I want to talk about some of your highlights of your career. And um, I wonder how much just ticking a box with the Olympics took some pressure off in Rio. Did that help you think? Yeah, I, I really think so. I remember um, I remember saying to a friend um, a month or two after the Olympics, I think I may have been drunk at the time. It was in that period of time where, you know, you're allowed to let your hair down a bit. Um, I remember saying to this friend, um, 
you go to one Olympics for the experience, you go to two for hardware. And I had that in my in my mind from very soon after London was that I wanted to go again and that I felt like I could achieve more and that London had been so amazing, like still to this day, one of the best experiences of my life, probably the best in terms of any sporting event I've ever been to. It was way better than Rio for me in terms of an actual experience of, a, of an Olympic Games. Um, it was brilliant. I absolutely, I lapped it up. I loved it. Um, I loved the fact that as a nation, I think, you know, the Brits, we put on a great show and I think there was a lot of naysaying really beforehand mm-hmm. and they did a really good job. And I just, I, oh, there's so much about that. Those, those two weeks that I could bang on about for a really long time that I, I loved and I thought was amazing, but it definitely ignited a little bit of a something inside me that was like, yeah, this is really cool, Vicky. Now you can go and tell everyone that you're an Olympian, but I think you want a bit more than that. And I think maybe you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't try to achieve more than that. And, you know, it was also helped by the fact, I guess, I'd been in Darren's training group up until that point, And Lisa Norden had just won a silver. Sarah, mm-hmm. true, obviously Groffy had come really close with that fourth place. As a squad, we'd done well, but you know, someone in our group had brought back a medal and that was that was pretty cool. And I I remember thinking, yeah, like let's let's go all in for this. Let's let's try and try and do something similar. Mm. I love the expression, like you said, the first one's for experience, the second one's for hardware. I'm just wondering what the how we keep what's the next plus? What do we put here <laughs> for the third of <laughs> Is it yeah. pin- to come up with something there have you thought of something yet no i say? haven't i'm a bit scared to now maybe i was just young and ballsy <laughs> back then um no. let's um, come now that yeah. we're all old and wise we can come up with well, a third, the third thing one, the, third one's for the, free hit. the free hit that's mm. right the third one's like. the free hit yeah there so you go see so you've got it experience <laughs> hardware free hit love it that's fantastic now take us through the rio experience the emotions the day that sprint finish with your good friend and teammate, Non Stanford. And, and it almost looked like to some degree, Nicholas Spirig was maybe slowing down or just winding it into the finish and thought maybe the silver was even up for grabs. Take us through that whole, especially that finish um, of that day. What was that like? Oh, Rio. Um, Rio, I got on a plane to go to Rio the most excited I've ever been to get on a plane in my life. I was so ready. I felt, and I know people talk about this all the time, but I'm like, no, I was really ready for that day. But I, I just felt it. I felt that I'd done, the preparation had been perfect. I'd not had a niggle. I'd not had to miss a day of training. Everything, everything that if you were to put together your dream run up to an Olympic Games, I just did it all. And I'd never been fitter. I'd never been in better shape. I'd never been happier and healthier and feeling more positive about a race and I remember getting on the plane I was on the same flight to Rio as Helen and just go like basically bouncing over to her she was like oh my god it's her again um but I I was just I was super ready for for going going to Rio and I was excited the whole week and then the day before the race I started to get a bit of an upset stomach and I didn't really think too much of it I went for a walk with Reese on the beach um Reese wasn't allowed in the team hotel we didn't stay in the um, village itself we stayed in a hotel in Ipanema which is sort of one bay round from Copacabana where the race was and we stayed in this hotel but only accredited staff and athletes were allowed in the hotel but they'd managed to source like this apartment block next door um that some extras so Mark Jenkins was in there as well and our run coach was in there and Reese was in there 
So I went for a walk with Reese on the beach and we sort of just like, you know, brushed it off as, oh, you're just getting a bit nervous now because it's, it's sort of really happening. Like that, this, don't worry about mm. it. And I sort of did, forgot about it, went back to the hotel, had my pizza before the race, as I often do. Um, went to bed feeling like nervous, excited, but fine. Went to sleep absolutely fine. I normally sleep pretty well before races. I don't tend to suffer with with insomnia or anything like that. And um, I woke up at 4am in the morning and had to rush to the toilet. So at that point, my day had sort of uh, turned into not not a great one. Um, and I ended up having to go and fetch the, the physio who's staying, I think, just like two doors down from me. And we were sort of ringing the doctor back in the UK with the time difference. It was about 8am in the UK. And asking him, okay, well, what can I take? What can I have that can settle my stomach? What am I allowed to take? Um, and yeah, for the next, we didn't race till 11 a.m. So I definitely wasn't due to be up at 4 a.m. Um, I, it was this kind of roller coaster of emotions of, I can't believe I've got here in this shape, feeling so ready, feeling like I can take on absolutely anyone today. And yet now I'm sick. I sort of couldn't, mm. couldn't like really accept that. And I was like, I, you hear about it all the time. Oh, they were in such great shape when they got sick at the Olympic Games. I'm like, oh, that's going to be me. I'm going to be one of those people that I'm just going to be that girl who just got sick at the Olympic Games. <laughs> and uh, it was it was a it was a roller coaster morning, I can tell you. And Reese had, had gone off to get me some coke because we've been told that um, flat coke was probably the best thing that I could try and absorb and that would give me some energy for the day and. So I essentially had some dry toast and flat Coke and that was, that was my morning fuel. Um, and I remember by the time I left the hotel kind of being like, okay, well, I didn't come all this way to not do it. So I'm going to go down to that start and I'm going to see how, see what I can do. I'm going to see if I can get through the swim. I'm going to see if I can get through, um, the first lap on the bike. Cause as you may or may remember the it had big hill on the course. So I remember thinking, you know, as someone who the bike isn't notoriously my strength anyway, thinking, oh, if I'm a bit down today, I'm not going to make it up that hill, let alone make it up in the group. Um, wow. But just kind of taking it, trying to think to myself, I'm just going to have to take this one phase at a time and just see what happens. And no matter what, it'll all be okay. And because I'd said this before I even got on the plane to go, even though I was excited and ready and feeling so fit, I was like, whether I come first or fifth or 25th or last, I'll be so proud of what I've done to get to this point. And mm. that's still, I had to sort of really think about that on the day of the game. Mm. Be like, you've got to remember everything you've done so far isn't, isn't for nothing. You still, you can still be proud of what you've done and the, the commitment you've shown and the dedication and everything. So I got down to the race and, you know, my stomach has sort of settled. I've not obviously been able to take in a huge amount. And, uh, I can't really remember too much about the start line. I remember saying something to the physio about praying for me that I don't have any unwanted accidents. Um, so just what you want before the race and uh I I remember the start of the swim it wasn't great but I did kind of manage to move through okay on the swim and come through transition and all us three Brit girls came through really close because they at the Olympics they rack you with your countries whereas you don't have that in a normal world series you're done on ranking whereas at the Olympics it's you know you're, you're racked next to your country uh countrymen or women and uh I remember thinking oh well we've all come out together that's okay and then sort of getting onto the bike and thinking, right, well, let's see if I can get up this hill then. And first lap round, okay, well, I'm up the hill. I'm all right. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then sort of just breaking it down like that every every part of the of the race. I remember taking a gel and throwing it straight back up again and thinking, okay, no gels for you today. Um, 
And as I sort of got onto the run, I remember being firstly just relieved that I'd got that far because the run is notoriously my strength. But then also being like, yeah, but I don't have a good stomach today. And the worst thing you want to be doing when you've not got a good stomach is running. And very, very <laughs> quickly on the run, I sort of realized that the determining factor in how fast I was going to run that day was not going to be my heart and lungs and it was not going to be my legs. It was going to be my stomach. And it was really a case of, okay, I'd speed up a bit. Okay, no, that's too much. Let's rein it back in again. And it was a real sort of, there was this this game of fun like that I was having to play with non of, of trying to kind of work out how I'm going to outwit this girl who is one of my best mates and my housemate and the person I've done all this training with. But then on top of that, on the other side, there's this element of, yeah, but I also can't do anything too crazy. Can't put any in a big attack now because that's not really going to end very well for me. So there was there was all of that going on during the race. And then we come down to the fact that it's head to head. And myself and Non had been running with a couple of other girls, but we'd broken away from them probably around, somewhere on the third lap. So somewhere between five and seven and a half K. Um, Nicola Spirig and Gwen Jorgensen are still up the road. Um, and as we sort of approach the last lap, it's like, okay, it's me or none. They're too far away. I don't think we're going to get them, but it's, it's, it's me or none here. And there's one medal. And that was, you didn't have too much time to ponder on it, but at the same time, it was, it was a realization of it's going to be one of us. And this is going to be hard because of what we mean to one another and the fact that we've lived together for three years and we've gone through all this preparation together. We've been injured together. Like we've done all of that. But yet there was only one medal that was seemingly available. And I felt like I knew that if Non put in a surge from about one to one and a half K out, if she dragged it out from a long way out, that she was probably better than me. But that if it came down to a blue carpet sprint finish, then I was probably better than her. And so as we sort of come back down the final long promenade straight that is about a kilometer or so, maybe just over, um, I remember thinking we've not we're not we're not winding up too much here like I'm still fine I'm still fine like if we're not we're not going beyond what I could cope with um then noticing that Nicola was starting to come back to us and thinking oh my word maybe we are gonna <laughs> maybe we are gonna get there maybe we are gonna get closer um but I think realistically she was still I think about six seconds in front of me and possibly was just sort of winding it down a little bit uh, knowing that she really was just safe in second couldn't win gold and was was fine um, and then we hit the blue carpet and I remember seeing the, uh, seeing the carpet coming for sort of, as you sort of round the corner, you can see it from, from a quite a long way out and thinking the first stride you take on that blue carpet is when you sprint. As soon as your foot hits that blue carpet, go, don't look back, do not look. And so I just absolutely gave everything, went full tilt for that final. I don't even know what the blue carpet is, 60, 70, 80 meters. I don't know. Um, gave absolutely everything and came out with a bronze medal and I can't really still believe at times that actually I did it um but hey I did what a great story it gives me my hair's look at that Laura my hair's standing up in it that's a really fantastic story and I I, it's just such an incredible journey that you and Non had together um was anything said in that final kilometer or do you guys just I mean a lot the other thing I want to add to that I just I love how present you were and, and, and I don't know whether it was because of the upset stomach, which was forcing you to really be present on your physical body and also your mental and emotional. You, you, you sound very connected because we often hear people, you know, kind of daydreaming or they, they lose 
they, that you, you seemed very concentrated. I love that. I think, um, I think it's actually one of the things that I do really well. I, I'm, I'm a very good in race moment kind of decision maker. Um, and I, mm. yeah, okay, I make mistakes. I don't always get it right. But when I do make mistakes from a sort of a decision in a race, I really beat myself up about that. You know, that's something that I will analyze and overanalyze afterwards and be like, oh, why did I do that? I had a moment to think about it and I did that. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I make a lot of decisions mid-race and I know non-spoken about her sort of memory of that either. And for her, she says she was almost more worried about us being caught from behind and thinking that she needed to keep just, she was front running our little, sort of our duo, if you like, and thinking, I just need to run this pace because then no one else will catch us. And then it'll, you know, then that'll be okay. Rather than thinking, well, how am I going to beat Vicky? And I think mm. I switched at some point from thinking we were going to get caught and thinking, no, we're absolutely not going to get caught. This is now me and non. And I I definitely vividly remember having the thoughts of what was she better at? What was I better at? Um, and how <laughs> how that could play into my hands. And it was in a way, it was an awful situation because of all the people on that start line who I would have wanted to sprint finish with for a medal she would have been the last she would have been number 55 of 55 you know that I would have wanted mm -hmm. to to sprint against um but no there were no words at all mid-race I do remember crossing the finish line and the first thing I said to her was I'm sorry um oh. and the first thing she said to me was don't be silly and congratulations because obviously she's amazing and that's what she would say um and yeah there was definitely this elation of oh my gosh, I've actually done it. And ha especially considering how that day itself had started and that all that had gone into the preparation, the years and all of that. But yeah, there was, there was a bit of guilt. There was, we went there for two Olympic medals. We wanted one each. And I really think we could have won one each. You know, we were very, very close to winning one each. And unfortunately mm -hmm. it came down to only one of us. And yeah, I remember one of the first things I saw that I was tagged in online was, why didn't they just cross the line together? How dare she outprint no. her, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, that's not allowed to start. But um, <laughs> that's also yeah. not what elite sport is. But yeah, it, I did. Mm -hmm. I definitely felt felt uh, felt guilt for the fact that it sort of was, had to be one or other of us. And I, I almost ended up with the, the survivor's guilt, if you like. It's interesting, you know, um, Vincent Lewis, when he came on the show, described that exact same kind of feeling he had when he won the World Series in 2019. And then Mario Mola crossed the line soon after, you know, I think actually Vincent at the grand final finished behind Mario, but Vincent, the first thing he did was come across the line as Mario went to give him a hug and congratulate him. And he said, look, I'm sorry. And, yeah. and Mario said, don't be silly. This is yours. You know, you weren't it. I've, you know, and he had three of his own anyway, but, it was, but yeah. he had the same kind of feeling um, with that mateship, with that, you know, the, we, this sport is, is so brutal and I mean it's like going to war and back you know you you kind of you're alongside each other you're in the trenches day in day out for years and then you have to have this one-off battle you know <laughs> and it's like yeah, it, it, it is it's, it's brutal and and again I've spoken yeah. about this before as well how even though I'm I'm a few years older than the non but I always felt like she she was kind of like the big sister, like she was the one who taught me things. And that when I moved to Leeds in 2013 and moved in with her, she just won the world title. So she was almost like my mentor. I learned a lot from her and I got better and improved from an athlete who, yes, I'd won, um, or I'd been to an Olympics rather, but I hadn't really won anything at that point. 
And I achieved all my best successes from the moment I moved to Leeds onwards. And that was when mm. I moved in with Nan. And so I owed, I felt like I owed her so much because she'd been so amazing and open and just happy to have me living her life with her and doing all that training with her. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to try and keep up. And eventually it started to pay off for me. And I, yeah, I definitely had this feeling of, is that really fair? Like she's the girl who kind of has had a massive part in me getting here. And now I have to out sprint her. <laughs> it's not fair. Yeah, but I think, I think what you guys yeah. are going to carry for the rest of your lives together is the journey into the games. It's like you said, you know, going to the games, whether you win or come 55th, the journey, the process that you've gone through, you have to be proud of what you've done. And, and you did that with non and that's, you know, the medal, the, the moment of glory is, is often what we look at, but it's those years that it, you're the stories and the journey that you guys have together that you're going to be talking about forever, you know, and that's yeah. what you get to keep. Um, and I think that's really special. I want to, I know I've taken a lot of your time, but you do have one other tremendous high that I do want to glimpse over if we can. And that was 2018. Um, and just in summary, you won the World Series. You won the world title. It was a very close battle with Katie Zafiris from the USA. Take us through what was on the line that final day on the Gold Coast Grand Final and what did you have to do to secure the world title? Yeah, so that season, it really just all came down to that that, that last day. And in a way, for a you know, sports broadcaster or for commentators or for fans of the sport, it was probably the best possible outcome they could have had to see two athletes having to go head-to-head on the final day of the World Series. And um, I'd been behind Katie all year. I hadn't started off as well as her. Um, and I hadn't even really thought it was possible that I could be in the running for the world title, especially because I've always considered myself a one-day racer, not someone who really is going to be particularly good at being at a high level for six months across a year. That sort of kind of wasn't what I considered to be my bag, but almost just kind of fell into it. I went to Leeds and I won a race and then I won another race in Edmonton. And by the time I'd won my third race that year in Montreal, it had come down to, I think, 35 points or something really similar to that between me and Katie. And to put that in context, whoever finished in front of the other down to about maybe 15th place or something like that, that person would win. So even wow. if I finished 14th, Katie finished 15th, I would still have been world champion that day. So it was there was no one else in, kind of in the battle for that. Um and I had a really good block of training. I had a really good year. It had almost kind of sort of snowballed from nothing. I was like, how have I got to the point where I'm actually in the fight for the world title? This is this is crazy. There was also something really nice about how it was sort of 10 seasons on from when I'd gone to the Gold Coast as an under 23 in that first year, 2009, when I'd come from nothing three months, two, three months beforehand, to then coming forth at that under 23. So it was back in the same course, same venue, Gold Coast. And uh, the race itself, I think I played it about as well as I've ever raced in my life. To this point, it's probably the closest I've ever done to a perfect race. Um, I swam right at the front. I came out right next to um, Jess Learmont at the front of the race. I think they actually gave me the fastest swim split, which I always think is really funny. And I take the mick out of Jess for because she clearly led the swim and I just came round her at the finish. Um, So it was actually not me who swam the fastest that day but uh it's the one and only time I'm gonna have that next to my name I'm taking it um I had 
great transitions, both my transitions really smooth. Um, I was in a small breakaway group on the bike. We did get caught, but I sort of looked after myself really well. I did little things really well. I just felt, you know, confident and happy and strong in what I was doing and then sort of hit the run course. And I, again, had a blinding transition. I came out about 10, 15 meters ahead of any of the other people that I was racing that's sort of for the for the win and on that day um but got caught by both katie zafiras and ashley gentle of australia so obviously she was racing on her home home soil that day and we ran as a three for quite a while until they actually um they surged and and i just realized the pace was just too hot for me i just felt like you know what i i don't think i can i can maintain the pace that they're going at i don't feel comfortable i haven't quite sort of found that rhythm I always feel like with with triathlon you you surge out of t1 t2 sorry and you feel out of control for quite a while and you don't feel like you're in a rhythm and then eventually you you get it and it might be at a kilometer it might be at two kilometers and you hope it's not much more than that but it might be um and on that day I just didn't feel especially good um for a little while and they were really ramping up the pace and I just thought I'm gonna have to let them go I'm going to have to let them go and we'll just see what happens. And about halfway through the run, I think they had about 12, 13 seconds on me when the gap had got to its sort of biggest. And um, I remember one of the um, the staff, the ITU staff, who's going to remain nameless because I'll get in trouble otherwise, um, gave me a, a yell halfway through the, the run and was like, <laughs> Vicky, this is the F in World Championships. What are you doing? Like, kind of giving me a bit of a kick up. The <laughs> he, right. Yeah, he really gave me a, a bit of a, a moment of, come on, girl, like, you've you got to fight for this. And it sort of coincided just as I was, just as I was starting to feel like I had, you know, a bit of a rhythm had come about and I was feeling okay and I got on top of the pace. And those girls in front had started to slow a bit, I think. I'm not sure. I mean, I've never really looked at the splits to this day as to whether I sped up or they slowed down. But within half a lap, I was back on their shoulder. And I think from the second I got there, I knew I was going to win. Not that I knew I was going to win the race, because I actually didn't. I finished second. But I mean, that I felt like I was going to win the world title. I felt that battle between me and Katie. The fact Mm -hmm. that I'd come back into the race, if you like, from having been dropped... I felt like that was almost like a bit of a superpower moment. It was like I was so full of confidence in that second that it was like, now how are you going to beat me? That That's kind of the feeling that I had. Um, and yeah, within probably 500 meters, less than a K, definitely after the point of me catching back up to Katie and Ashley, um, I surged again and Ashley came with me. Um, I actually remember Ashley saying to me at one point, we've dropped Katie. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, I'm not going to have a chat about it. We've got to keep running. <laughs> um, so she sort of wanted to let me know that we'd kind of done the damage and made made a break. But for me, I just wanted to just plow on. You know, I just really wanted to, to make that gap bigger and bigger and just keep sort of pushing forward. And I'd also had in my head that I really did want to win the grand final. I've always felt like to win the world title, there's something special about doing it by winning the, the grand final. Mm-hmm. And I really mm-hmm. wanted that. Um, but I think my, the only mistake I made that day was to get excited about the fact I knew I'd won the world title because by the time we were, we still probably had about three K to go when I broke away from Katie. So I had another, you know, what's that 10 minutes or so of running of kind of going, right. I feel good. I feel confident. I sort of know that I've got the world title now, but I've got to race Ashley. And in my head, 
I I was like, I'm the world champion, I'm the world champion, oh my God, if I keep running, I'm the world champion. <laughs> and I sort of, I, I think it's the probably the one time that I'm really guilty of letting something like that overcome me before I get to the finish line. For example, in Chicago, that race I had to qualify for the Olympics way back in 2015, Yes, I knew I was safe in third and all I had to do was get to the finish line in third and I was going to be fine. But I was very much like, no, keep going. No, don't focus on that. You're not in the Olympics yet. Keep going, keep going. You know, I was very strict with myself. And in Gold Coast, I definitely was very good at a lot of the other decisions I made that day and very sensible in how I ran my race. But I got to 3K to go and I knew I'd won. And I think at that point, I I lost my how do I outwit Ashley now? What do I do? And the mistake I mm. made, I think, is that I did too much front running. I attacked too early. I let Ashley lead into the home straight. Like There's a few little things that I did and it did come down to a sprint finish and absolutely no disrespect to Ashley. She was phenomenal on that day. And it's actually really lovely for her to have won that in her home, you know, in her home country. Mm. She only lives just down the road. So I think it was really special. It was a really kind of nice outcome for us both. But there is maybe one or two regrets about how I how I finished off that race. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're so tough on ourselves, aren't we? I love mm. that. You've got the world title, but you're still going to be like, oh. <laughs> I know. It's, you, you kind of almost want that, the, the perfection, you know, you seek perfection all the time. Mm -hmm. And that is yeah. ultimately why I still do this sport, because I sort of still mm. kind of feel like I want that day, that perfect race to have felt like the perfect prep, or, you know, all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, definitely. I, I had pretty close to a perfect year for me that year in terms of everything that I, I did, um, especially with the, with the World Series. Um, and it would have just been like the cherry on top of, you know, not even the cherry, the sprinkles on top of the cherry, on top of the icing, on top of the cake. It would have been everything to just um, to have won that race on that day. But I, I definitely wasn't disappointed. I wasn't, I wasn't upset. I just, I just wished I'd, I'd used that racing brain that I normally feel like is so, so good. And I had <laughs> used so well for an hour and 50 minutes, but at the last 10, I sort of, um, I sort of got a bit doolally about the fact that I was about to be the world champion. <laughs> Look, I think a lot of us, I think it would have happened to most of us in the in your position, in fairness. I think there is that, oh, finally I'm a world champion. Now, what, you know, talking about, you know, what's happening next? What's uh, the lead up to Tokyo? What's it look like? And uh, and even on that post-Tokyo, you know, career, long course, you know, what's it look like, the future here? So for now, I mean, as you probably know, there's still some pretty tough restrictions in the UK. There's still a lot of travel restrictions. We have one of those lovely variants in the UK, which means a lot of countries don't want us to go there. So there's there's challenges around travel. And as much as possible, I'm not going to travel very much. Um, I haven't been out of the UK since I think it was Hamburg last year. I went to race. Um, and before that, it would have been, you know, when we came back from Australia in March last year. So I've, I've basically been out of the country once in 14 months. And uh, I will be staying in the UK predominantly. I will quite possibly be going to a World Cup that's in Portugal in a few weeks' time. Um, and that will be kind of my one race outside of the UK that I'll do. And then uh, from the middle of June to the middle of July in an ideal world, I'd like to go to altitude. Um, altitude is something that works really well for me. I've done it a lot of times through my career and um, yeah, always had really positive results. I don't think I've ever come down from altitude in a worse place than I've, than I've gone. So we've got at the moment a plan to go to Switzerland for a month, um, San Moritz, 
um, from the middle of June to the middle of July. Again, that is very much pending sort of confirmation that A, mm. Switzerland will have us um, and B, that I'll be allowed <laughs> to go from the federations on this side. Um, and then from there, we'll fly pretty directly from Switzerland into uh, into Japan, where we'll do our holding camp for sort of a couple of weeks ahead, ahead of the race, and then only sort of dip into Tokyo in those few days before the event itself. So that's kind of my plan all the way through really until yeah, end of July, beginning of August, when we'll fly home from, from Japan. And then beyond that, there's a, I mean, there's a whole race calendar, but whether I do everything that's on it, what I choose to do is still kind of up for discussion. And you'll probably know what I say when I say that an Olympic year is an Olympic year of two halves. There's everything that goes up until the Olympics and there's everything that happens after. And you kind of put everything in that second half just goes on to postpone and you sort of Mm. deal with that once you get back from the Olympic Games. So we have a rough plan of what I might do. And um, there's some Super League racing that I'd like to do that I'm definitely sort of down to do at the moment. Um, but I also know what it feels like to come back from an Olympic Games in a good place. And I know what it feels like to come back from an Olympic Games in a not so good place. And <laughs> I don't want to put too much pressure on myself to be like, I'm going to do this, this and this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and what about, I mean, would you be somebody that's interested in doing some longer racing or other forms of racing beyond the Olympics? So I've always said that I'm not, I guess, inspired to do the longer stuff in that I don't think it makes me want to get out of bed in the morning and do the hard yards. Um, I have to have that, that. (laughs) you know, that that passion, that desire, that goal to go and do something that really fires me up. And for me, that's always been major Mm -hmm. championships. It's always been the Olympics. That's what's been my, my big driving force. I don't have that same burning ambition at the moment with long course and I've always said that I also feel like my particular attributes are better placed with the short course stuff but that doesn't mean that I'm absolutely going to say no because I will be probably that person who says I'll never do an um, I'll never do an Ironman if I ever you've ever seen me on an Ironman start line you have permission to shoot me whatever and then I'll be there um but yeah, yeah so I every year I, I mean I, I'm into all the racing and I watch all of it as much as I can I'm up to date with a lot of the results like yeah okay I probably don't know every athlete that's racing across every discipline or distance of the sport but I, I know quite a lot I, I do follow it I am a real fan of the sport a real nerd as I said earlier I love the stats and all the rest of it um but I I just don't know yet whether I'm interested in actually doing it myself so yeah may, maybe reese did actually say to me just last week no it was even it was beginning of this week he said um would you fancy doing an iron man at the end of this year and I, I thought he was joking i just sort of laughed at him he's like no 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 i'm i'm, I'm kind of serious i was like what are you talking about and he was just sort of like well you know if you're never going to be fitter than you are after the olympic games so yeah okay you might have to put in a bit of specific work but your actual overall fitness is going to be you know highest it's ever been so why don't we use that and he sort of said you know if there is any part of you that's got sort of that itch that needs to be scratched then we should probably think about it and yeah I'm still not sure whether that's something that I want to do but I will just say don't say absolutely not because it might happen (laughs) I I think Laura and I were in the same boat I waited till I was 40 I think Laura you're about the same weren't you 40 we we both gave Ironman a go we did some plenty of halves 
and we had the non-drafting Olympic distance in the US here for a while. But it is, it's an interesting, isn't it? You kind of, you got to have your blinders on though. You got to focus on what you're good at and do the very, very best you can at it. Now I've taken so much of your time. This, <laughs> your storytelling is just so fun and it really, really enjoyed it. I do want to leave with just one question for you. And, and this is what I like to end the show with. What, what's sort of one tip you have for people on how to optimize their lives? I think, um, I think the one thing I would say is to work out what your passion is and then prioritize it. So work out mm-hmm. what lights your fire, what makes you want to get up in the morning, what, you know, what is it that gets you going? And then you prioritize that in your life and work everything else out around it. You know, work out what's important to you. Let the small things go. Um, and yeah, don't, you know, go your own way to work, to find out what works for you to get there. But I think having a passion is absolutely key. Oh, Couldn't agree they're, more. They're words to my own heart, aren't they? I, it's, you know what I love about that is passion, if it's strong enough, is there during the low times. You know, we didn't go into your low times, but you've had plenty of injuries and setbacks and but that passion is the fuel that keeps you going even through the hard times, you know, and, and it's not following your passions blindly, you know, you still need some ability and, you know, recognizing your talents, but I like that. I like that very much. Yeah. You've got to sort of use it as your, your guiding light at times, you know, cause obviously there's going to be low times and injuries and illness and just times mm-hmm. where you can't get it to all click. That's one of the beauties and cruelties of our sport, trying to get all three to sort of mesh at the same time. But your your mm. guiding light your, has to be your passion. It's got to still be there. Your purpose. Why are you doing this? And if you haven't got that in our sport and in any walk of life, but in our sport, it's so important to have that there. Right. Mm. Well said. There is a whole bunch of questions I still have for you, but we're going to have to almost <laughs> do it in a, in a part two series because I think we 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 discussed a lot of your journey. Um, we discussed some incredible highs and. And you're very good at creating, you know, we could see it, we could feel it the way you did. You're, you're an incredible storyteller. So we really, really enjoyed that. I mean, I have a whole heap of questions about the process and how you operate and blah, 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 blah. I'm going to have to have you back. So when you win that Olympic medal, okay, <laughs> what, what we need from you is that you just call us up as your first interview post the Olympics, okay? No problem. <laughs> and we'll sign that up. <laughs> and we'll sign that up for the the second chat. But this well, you're, has been... you're the first to ask, so it's only fair. Oh well, there oh. we go. <laughs> there we go. Fabulous. That's good to know. This has just been so fantastic, Vicky. Just to get to know you a bit better in your journey. Honestly, it's just been so fun. And um, just thanks for sharing your time and and all of that knowledge. It's just absolutely fantastic. Where can listeners follow you? Where's the best place? Yeah, I um, I am on social media. I'm not there probably as much as other people are, but I am there. Um, Instagram's probably the best one, Vix, V-I-X, Holland. Um, same on Twitter. So occasionally I'll pop up on those so you can catch up with uh, what I'm up to on there. Perfect, perfect. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes. Um, Laura, anything you want to finish up with here? No, it's been great listening to all your <laughs> stories, Vicky. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of the tail end of your beginning of your career. And I mean... Nine, ten, we kind of raced a bit together, but yeah, it's really cool. nice to hear stories of your peak races and and um, all the passion and dedication to trying to make the best for yourself. It's fantastic. It was really enjoyable. Mm. Thanks yeah. for letting me be a part of it. Yeah. No, thank you. Right. Thanks for letting me waffle. <laughs>
Oh, love loved the waffle. Loved love it. the waffle because it's better than waffle. It's just creative, fun storytelling that's been, that we've said with tremendous passion. So thanks again. Thank you, everybody, for listening and sharing the show and all your feedback. Um, you can find all the show notes and timestamps and coupon codes and all the links um, to Vicky at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks again, Vicky, and uh, stay on the line. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.